0: You can't literally buy love in the sense of walking into a store and being like, yes, one love, please. <laughs> but if you're too poor to go out on dates and if you can't afford, it's very stressful trying to keep a happy romantic relationship together when you're under permanent financial stress. Yes. It's a lot harder than if you can afford to pay someone to take care of all the dishes and the kids. So there are so many ways in which it's misleading to say that love and money have nothing to do
1: with each other. Mm-hmm. They have a
0: lot to do with each other.
2: On this episode of the Multi Multiamory podcast, we are back with author and philosophy professor Carrie Jenkins to discuss her new book, Sad Love, Romance, and the Search for Meaning. Now, this was surprising to me to find out, but it has been six years it's really since incredible. Carrie was on our show last. Uh, if you want to check out that episode, it is Multi Multiamory episode 113 versus this one, which is 399. So My just goes to show wow, how long ago wow. Yeah, Carrie, was. you're
1: here on the cusp of almost 400 episodes <laughs> in six yeah. years. Six years plus the 200 years that has been the pandemic, so even <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that counts for at least 200 yes. years. Indeed, yeah,
2: absolutely. <laughs> well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us
0: again. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't believe it's been six years. I know. Yeah.
3: Yeah. First off, I just wanted to ask in that time, just how have you been? (laughs) Have there been like any huge updates (laughs) in your life or changes in the work that you do? And, and also because you write about love and you, you write about Mm -hmm. so many things that we talk about on this show. Do you think that the landscape of love and relationships have changed in the six years since we last spoke to you?
0: Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, everything has changed. Everything has changed. You, you know, um, that the book that I just published, I, I took years longer to write it than I wanted to and originally planned to because the world just kept changing and hmm. you can't really write. I couldn't really write at the beginning of the pandemic. I just stopped. You, you, you know, I couldn't see what the world I was trying to talk into was going to be. So
1: hmm.
0: um, how do, how do you, how do you talk to a future that you are so radically unsure about? Um how how I've been, I mean, I've been all over this shop. <laughs> I had a I had a long period of depression after mm. my first book came out. Mm. And I mean that's partly what um what the second book is is about, among other things. Um, and how mm. that kind of uh uh impacted my relationships and how it made me think about relationships and happiness and romance and the happy ever after myth and mm. wow. all of those things. But I mean the it ended up being the book ended up being um you know not not uh bigger in the sense of a huge weighty tome or anything but the the ideas sort of got bigger i, I ended up having a much bigger scope than i had in the first book and and i think bigger than i had intended when i started writing the second book sure. um and i think that had a lot to do with the pandemic honestly like it mm. just kind of forced people to get some
1: perspective that that we didn't have before. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like you could talk about that for several hours straight Mm -hmm. at this point. I want to rewind talking about the way you felt after the first book came out. And it's funny because Mm -hmm. I think I went through that after my book came out. I have other author friends who've Mm -hmm. gone through that. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing a little bit about That process, like going through that dark valley and coming out of it.
3: We're all about to publish a book. Right. Jason and and I are about to
1: be first time time authors. So y'all got to get ready for that for the postpartum.
3: (laughs) No one told me about
2: this part. Jeez. I know, right? It's
0: it's a thing. I mean, absolutely. It's a thing. Um, And I mean, a a lot of it depends on what kind of book you publish and what kind of response you get from the world. But um, in my case, the experience was of, being not not unprepared in the sense that I didn't know it was coming, but unprepared in the sense that I didn't know what it would be like to go through um, having a little bit more of a public profile mm. and just really getting waves and waves of hateful feedback. Like every time I would be in a more mm. uh, high visibility interview or press coverage, um, people would mention that I was... Uh, polyamorous and I was in more than one relationship and I would get this just waves of slut shaming and horrible stuff and lots of it was also racist which was really upsetting to mm. um, you know being a, a white woman and then having had that privilege of largely having racism kind of hidden from my view for most of my life um, it was just horrific to see what people were saying about my partners um, and knowing that that it was because of their association with me that they were being exposed to that, mm. so I mean, all of this kind of was swirling around, and I had other things going on in my life too. It wasn't just about that, um, but that was a big part of it. And and um, yeah, I think I think I spent maybe um, a good couple of years going through some pretty some pretty rough times. I, I was very lucky. I had I had support all the way through from partners family friends and a very good medical team <laughs> mm-hmm. so um you know most people i know who've had to go through something like that have had to do it with less help than i had and so i'm just eternally grateful and um uh, for for having had that um I, I mean in in the in this book i end up talking about basically some of the forms that gratitude takes and my understanding of what it is that i'm grateful for mm out of that process and just trying to think about how to expand from that experience into a broader view about love, love itself.
1: Yeah. So I would say that we, I think the three of us can definitely resonate with that experience, you know, anytime the three of us together or individually have like done interviews and in e- it's even slightly more mainstream leading, leaning mm-hmm. media or shows or whatever that it is like this big slap in the face of like, oh, right, there is this whole mainstream current of thought that's so disgusted and so scared by thinking about love in these particular terms. And in your newest book, you shared this story of like, you know, giving this philosophy presentation and it was supposed Mm -hmm. to be about all the things you write about in your book about the ways that we view love and relationship and everybody glommed on to the whole polyamory thing. And then people are asking you questions about how you manage STIs and things like that. So I was wondering like in the world that you move in, around mm-hmm. philosophers like do you think that this is a subculture that brings with it its own slightly conservative bent or do you think that just like philosophers mm-hmm. like everyone else are subject to the same like mainstream messaging around relationships and reinforcing that stigma of people who are non-normative like what's your take on that it's it's a weird one but i feel like academics and maybe even
0: especially academic philosophers um, who you might think would be some of the most open-minded, like critical-thinking people, um, <laughs> it can it can really go the uh, in the opposite direction sometimes. And around certain kinds of issues, hmm. um, academia can be you know a really um, horrible place. Sometimes there's there's a lot of um, systemic racism. There's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of transphobia, especially in academic philosophy um, and uh, especially in the UK in fact for whatever reason that seems to have really focused around um, Hmm. uh, academic philosophy and there are the arguments of a few people Um, and I I don't know exactly why it is but one of my theories is it has to do with that uh, phenomenon that's sometimes called self-licensing where if you tell yourself you're good in some way you've kind of given yourself permission actually to be not so good in that mm. way. <laughs> so um, people before they uh, have to do some, you know, job evaluations or something like that, uh, if they tell themselves before doing it that they are very objective and unbiased, they're actually slightly more likely to be biased in how they rank um, the applications uh, mm. for the job. So it's it's kind of like um, if you're an phlo- academic philosopher and you go around all the time sort of congratulating yourself on how very rational and clever and mm. critical you are then maybe that kind of licenses you a little bit to um, be be a little less those things then that might be ideal so I, I don't know but I, I yeah I mean academia can be uh for all it's kind of it gets this weird press as a hotbed of radical left-wing thinking um <laughs> you can be really surprisingly unprogressive about a lot of a lot of stuff and that that caricature doesn't ring at all true to my experience I think it is quite a conservative quite stuffy place t- at times yeah. and I think uh, it makes I mean, sense yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I was just going to make the comment. I think it makes sense how that also layers on top of the fact that even just a very common cognitive bias for all human beings is to think that we're less biased than the average person. Right? <laughs> like, you sure, know, right. <laughs> <And> I'm sure. you <laughs> we yeah, all want to think we're can, great. Yeah, really turn we're the probably volume not up on that great. That. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. Exactly. And what, what did you say this concept is called? Is licensing,
0: self licensing? Yeah, self licensing. Sometimes called okay. um, moral licensing or moral self licensing.
2: Wow. I mean, I feel like we could do a whole episode just right now talking about that, which is reminding me of six years ago, where it's just like, I just want to keep talking about all the things that you bring up. I love that. But I am going to bring us back to the book, though, because that is what we're here to talk about. Uh, So you start off the book, Sad Love, by interrogating the relationship between happiness and love. So, could you start out by telling us a little bit about what did you find when you looked at that relationship and you know <laughs> the the ideological role of happiness and how we think about that in relation to love?
0: Yeah, I mean, it all got started with just thinking about how how often we hear the phrase uh, or hear phrases that assume that love and romantic love in particular should make you happy if if successful. Um, you know, if it's going well. Um, so we ask, are you happy with this person? Are you happy together? To ask, is the relationship good? Um, and we talk about, obviously, the the happy ever after. Um, and one thing I noticed was that um, this seems to track a much more, a much bigger situation, um, which is this emphasis on positive emotion more generally, um, especially in North mm. American culture. And this this um, this is something that I, I talk about a little bit in in uh, detail in the first chapter or so of the book. Um, but the idea that that really happiness is like uh, emotional success, and and that each person is responsible for their own emotional success. Um, so you have to become happy, um, and that's how you'll prove that you're like a successful, emotionally successful person. So it's a bit like sort of. The American dream idea that to become rich is to be successful and everyone can succeed financially in America, right? That's the idea. Um, and they are um I don't know if you've been earth. to America, Carey, but who it's you true are to start with
1: it's a fact. Oh yeah, this is this
0: is what I hear. Yeah, every time I've been there, it seems exactly like that. So I just assume that's completely true. And then um <laughs> overlaid on that you get this kind of what what's sometimes called toxic positivity, which is the idea that happiness and good vibes are the only acceptable emotional states. And mm-hmm. anything like anger or sadness is a sign of failure or a sign that you're just a, not a good person to be around um, and complaining and so on. You, sh- you know, shouldn't be around complaining. So um, I, I kind of put a bunch of these thoughts together um, and associate them with the kind of platitudes that we tend to exchange when we're talking about what a good life is. And we say things like, well, good life is one that's full of love. A good life is one that's full of happiness. Right? Again, th- those two things taken as kind of almost the same goal, the same end states for a good life. Hmm. Um, and then we say things like, "Oh, and, and the best things in life are free." So, love and happiness; those are supposed to be free, i.e., everybody should be able to succeed on those terms, like however rich or poor you are when you're starting out. Um, and um, and then you know we start to kind of build around that the idea that a good life is going to be aiming at a certain kind of love the kind that is associated with that happy ever after the romantic dream um and this becomes uh, or is i should say uh, a normative status a normative goal for everybody um whether or not we buy into it right because of course lots of us are <laughs> aware that's that's not uh, the ideal life condition for everybody the the tra- traditional I'm using scare quotes here. The traditional nuclear family shape of of romantic relationship is not everybody's life goal, but everybody is still subject to it as a bar that they can be measured against and found wanting if they're not meeting that condition.
1: Yeah, I think what you're touching on about positive emotions being weighed a little bit too heavily in a lot of Western, Northwestern cultures, it does strike me that on the underside of that is sort of yeah this idea that like suffering instead of suffering just being a part of life that suffering is a failure of some kind (laughs) if you're suffering (laughs) Mm -hmm. you're failing in some way you're failing either materially or you just don't have the right attitude (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and that somehow it's your goal to your job to fix that so you're not Grateful enough, you're not journaling enough. You're not doing enough yoga. You're not eating the right foods, and and you know, like I'm not knocking any of those things, and I know they can help people. But if we only look at the individualistic level, it's sort of like trying to understand why some people are poor by just looking at how hard they work mm. and not mm-hmm. at the social circumstances that they find themselves in. Um, and I think the, sa- the exact same kind of conditions should be taken into account when we're trying to think about why some people are struggling in love why some people are struggling to experience happiness and um instead of instead of understanding that those things are actually part of a complicated uh and dynamic uh social structure we have a tendency to think of them as purely individual and um, private things so
2: Mm,
0: completely nothing to do with nothing political nothing to do with any social Mm -hmm. uh, prejudices nothing to do with Privilege, nothing, et cetera. Um, and, and that's part of what saying that the best things in life are free does. Mm. Tells us, eh, nothing to see here. Right, right. Kind of
2: erases all that other context around it.
0: Yeah. And just yeah. it's
2: all, it's all your own fault, whichever way it goes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think also yeah. on
2: the other side is that thing that we see come up with we also see this come up with money and career success and things like that. It's that if I'm successful, it's all because of how hard I worked or how smart I was or yeah. how clever I was or yeah. something Exactly. Yeah. totally discounting luck, privilege, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, the billion other factors that went into that and with love is yeah. the same thing. So yeah, yeah, that makes very much sense. so.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, you can't literally buy love in the sense of, Walking into a store and being like, "Yes, one love, please." Uh, so, but but if you're too poor to to go out on dates, and you know if you can't afford, it's it's very stressful trying to keep a happy romantic relationship together when you're under permanent financial stress. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder um, than if you can afford to pay someone to take care of all the dishes and the kids, right? right. So there's um, there there's so so many ways in which it's it's um, it's misleading to say that. Uh, to say that love and money have nothing to do with each other they have mm. they have a lot to do with each other
1: yeah well, so i want to bring us around to this concept that you talk about in the book quite a bit which is eudaimonic love now i was first introduced to this concept when you included it in part of a quote for our book which threw all of us mm-hmm. for a loop and our copy editor for a loop as well um for our <laughs> listeners at home this is i'll spell it out for for you e u d a i M-O-N-I-C, love, eudaimonic love. And so, yeah, this is the main principle of the book. So can you, in a nutshell, tell us what this is? And I mean, also, you set this up as kind of a counterpoint to romantic love. Good yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
0: the way that I see it, um, romantic love, um, and not the love part, but the romanticness (laughs) part um, is really defined by this normative fairy tale, you know, and it's, it's monogamous, it's permanent, it's, um, happy ever after. It's all of those things. Um, and, uh, eudaimonic love is, um, is not defined by any of that at all. You, Eu, uh, eudaimonia is an old, it's an ancient Greek word. Um, and it's quite often associated with the philosopher Aristotle because he talked about eudaimonia. Um, and uh, he used it to mean something like human flourishing or flourishing in general. But for humans, it would be a particularly distinctively human kind of flourishing. Um, I don't really care for Aristotle's theory of what that amounts to. So I'm just going to leave him there. <laughs> but before <laughs> Aristotle got his hands on the word, um, the original meaning of it was um, good spirited. So mm. uh, the EU, in, EU at the beginning there is the same EU as you find in euphoria. Like uh, It means good. And then the um, daimonia, that word daimon means uh, any kind of supernatural entity, a spirit, maybe a god or a demigod or something that could intercede or intervene for you and help you out. Um, so um, eudaimonia uh, originally would have been talking about um, living a life that was good-spirited and um, was benefiting from the interventions of, of benevolent deities mm. and supernatural forces and all of that sort of thing. Um, and that's the meaning I'm interested in. Um, Not that you necessarily have to interpret it in any supernatural way. um, But what I want to think about is uh, all of the ways in which any kind of relationship is always subject to the daimons, the spirits around it. So not just to be eudaimonic, to have good spirits, a relationship doesn't just need for the people in it to be good spirited people for one another and in general. Um, It's also going to be impacted by the community, the vibe, the time and the place, the politics, the state of the world. Um, But, I mean, the support of friends and family, things like that can really make or break uh, love relationships. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to make room for the role of all of those different kinds of good spirits in supporting and making love um, possible and um, and and making it something that is um that is creative um that is collaborative that looks beyond just the role of individuals in this world um into something <laughs> something that has a a bigger goal so um a eudaimonic love doesn't have to be a romantic love so it doesn't have to be between a romantic couple as we might think about um, eudaimonic love could be between friends it could be between family members um, what I want to do is say we put romance and romantic love on a kind of pedestal um, and we've associated it and happiness that goes along with it as the best things in life and that everyone should aim at those things eudaimonia and eudaimonic love in my view are not defined by any kind of emotion um, so in fact they have room for all of the human emotions, the full range of human experience and emotion can be part of a good spirited love. Um, and instead of aiming at happiness, um, what I say a eudaimonic love would aim at is um, mm. more like a creative work of art, right? A, something collaborative, some kind of meaningful project that the people who are in the loving relationship undertake together. So whether that's to raise kids or you know paint a great mural on the walls of the city (laughs) um, or you know really anything to discover the fundamental physics of the universe it doesn't matter what it is that makes people's lives and lives meaningful um the point is to look for those things that make make your uh, experience of life meaningful and stop thinking about what makes you happy Mm. (laughs) because There's another part of this, which is, um, this is not a new point that I'm making. A lot of philosophers have been saying this for a very long time. Aiming at happiness doesn't work, right? Trying to make yourself happy actually doesn't tend to make people very happy. And I think the same is true for trying to make yourself happy ever after in a romantic sense. It doesn't actually work. It's not going to lead to happy ever after for the majority of people. Uh And I draw on um, the work of Viktor Frankl, who um, was really influential in saying um, that, that if you are going after happiness, um, you're you're unlikely to to mm. <laughs> succeed. But what you need to do is go after what makes what makes your life meaningful, what has meaning for you. Um, that's actually why the the book has the subtitle "Romance and the Search for Meaning." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nod to Viktor Frankl's book, "Man's Search for Meaning."
2: Mm, okay, right, right, right. It's, it's interesting, as we bring up that topic a lot, anytime we talk about positive psychology stuff on mm-hmm, our podcast mm-hmm. is that idea that, contrary to what you might think from its name, it's not all about being happy all the time. It's about yeah. that wellness, right, of finding meaning mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, something deeper than just being happy all the time, because that's not realistic, and yeah. you, it's not achievable, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and so you know, um, there's there's a little part of the book where I talk about the the positive psychology wars and okay, <laughs> all, <yeah. laughs> how um, that segment of, of academic research has kind of flowed into popular culture and um, how how its its uptake has his uptake has sometimes um, mm. been seen as spawning toxic positivity, right? Um, yeah, but and I don't actually end up. Taking a, I don't have a horse in, in that race. <laughs> um, I think there's what I do think is there's a lot that goes on under the aegis of positive psychology that looks at what does, in fact, lead to um, the kind of things I would call you demonic. Um, and that has a lot to do with um, things like slow states, you know, practicing mm-hmm. um, um, uh, projects that take you a long time to accomplish and <laughs> require you to be fully immersed and engaged. Um, and um, are are in that respect pretty different from bingeing on Netflix or spending (laughs) money on Amazon or whatever the other things are that we tend to do when we're tired Mm. after a long day at work um, for a quick hit of happiness. Mm. Um, So that kind of research I think is really useful for understanding um, what eudaimonia is and how it works. Um, And indeed, it, it tends to back up some of what those much earlier philosophers were saying about The pure pursuit of happiness or pleasure for its own sake is really a pretty futile enterprise. Mm -hmm. You have to aim at something else and you will become happy in the pursuit of that, hopefully, if it goes well.
3: I guess, it, yeah, you, this leads into our next question, which you've talked about both a bit already, but you discussed the happiness paradox and the romantic paradox throughout the course of the book. So <laughs> you have already a, a touch, but can you walk us through what both of those things are so that our audience knows if they were to pick up the book beforehand? Yeah,
0: yeah. so the the paradox of happiness or sometimes called the paradox of hedonism is just that that idea that chasing your own happiness or your own pleasure tends not to make you happy in the long run or, or even at all <laughs> and um the uh, the romantic paradox and that that's an old problem like people have known about that for at least hundreds of years maybe longer um, my my um contribution is to add to that this idea of a romantic paradox which is that in just the same way the pursuit of happy ever after the romantic goal um, is, is not likely to lead to being happy ever after. In fact, it can, it can have the opposite kinds of results. Um, and that's part of, um, part of my critique of um, romantic love or the romantic ideology of love um, and the idea that in the pursuit of it, um, we should really uh, focus on on the thought that love is a sort of positive feeling or a happy state um, or that it should result in in a positive feeling or a happy state. Um, and think much more about how love can be active. Um, so not just a passive feeling that you have, but maybe something you do. Um, maybe it's about your um, actions that you might undertake towards another person or that you might undertake with another person in the service of a community or larger goals.
1: So I already, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I think Go that Yeah. So thinking about the happiness paradox and this idea of like, okay, well, you pursue something that gives your life meaning and value instead of just trying to find the things that make you feel good and make you feel happy. I feel like that's easier to swallow than telling someone, oh, you shouldn't be searching for happily ever after. Because then I could see the reaction of that being like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean I just need to date someone who's like shitty and that I'm not attracted to, and is, and like that I don't care and I don't have any feelings for? And you know, like like in a realistic sense, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't
0: recommend any of those things. <laughs> so,
1: um, no. So this is where the
0: the love part is is still love. Um so um when we think about uh, romantic love, we're encouraged to sort of package love in a certain way, in a certain kind of relationship structure. And um it's but it's still gotta be love. Otherwise it's not romantic love, it's not any kind of love. Mm. So so eudaimonic love is still love. And if you are not feeling it for someone then you're not feeling it for that person. <laughs> mm. um, and what I mean by that is if you're if you're not um if you're not doing the kind of things that we would normally take love to consist in, um if you're not uh, treating somebody well, let's say, um, if you're being abusive in a relationship, um, that's not going to be a loving relationship of any kind. Um, so you know, it's it's certainly not going to be a eudaimonic love relationship. Um in saying that some some relationships, some love relationships are eudaimonic um what I'm really talking about is has a lot more to do with um what it is that makes uh I mean really what it is that makes a life meaningful <laughs> and what mm. it is that makes uh, uh makes our loves feel meaningful to us. Um so there's um it's it's very possible to be in a love relationship that is, let's say, subject to um being dismissed, being delittled, being hidden away, and being stifled in every way possible—it's still love, but it's not going to be a eudaimonic love because it's—it's it's not able to, um, it's not being supported by good spirits. It's not able to grow. It's not able to exist. Um, eudaimonic love, uh, its um, its not about being sad, but it has hmm. room for sadness. Hmm. Um, it's hmm. not about having a miserable time. But if you are having a miserable time, it doesn't mean your love is uh, a failure. Um, as long as uh, you're being, uh, as long as you're still engaged in these eudaimonic projects, um, then your love may well be exactly what you need when you're going through this miserable time. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, so, so uh, the point of eudaimonic love is not to say suffer, um, but to say. Humans sometimes suffer and that too is part of love mm-hmm. sometimes.
2: Yeah, that's, that's great. And that, you know, something we talk a lot about to each other, I actually don't know how often we talk about this on the show, but is uh, in, in Buddhism, there's the concept of the second arrow. Of like, mm-hmm. sometimes we suffer and that's the first arrow that you couldn't prevent. Mm-hmm. But then when mm-hmm. we beat ourselves up for the fact that we're suffering mm. or we dwell on that, that's the second arrow that we're stabbing in ourself. And that's the one we yeah. could avoid. You can't avoid that first one. It just happens. <laughs> right, but right. there's that second one. And what you've been talking about reminds me of that idea mm-hmm. of, you know, I'm, I'm sad for whatever reason. And then I also feel bad that I'm sad because it means I'm a failure and mm-hmm. so now I'm suffering yeah. a second time. I'm suffering yeah. extra, possibly even more than I was suffering already from right. the, the first reason I was sad. And that that makes right. a lot of sense right. to think of it that way.
0: That's it. And if you if you didn't think that suffering in the first place was a failure condition because you didn't have happiness as your be-all and end-all life goal, then, yeah, the second arrow wouldn't have any grounds to hit home. You'd just be like, well, yeah, this is <laughs> my day. <laughs> my day sucks. <laughs> <Darn. Yeah. laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no.
2: All right. We're going to take a quick break to talk uh, to our listeners about some ways that they can support this show so that we can keep this content coming to everybody out there for free every week. It's something that we really value a lot. And an easy way that you can help support this show is just by taking some time to listen to our advertisers on this. If any are interesting to you, go check them out. It does directly help our show. And if not, that's cool too. We're just happy that you're here.
1: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. And I, so I, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which is like this notion, this very Western notion of love is a feeling or love is about <laughs> our feelings, which is, Mm -hmm. is so interesting to me because especially as you're talking about this idea of, you know, sad love, which makes room for sadness and all these other emotions. I often struggle when talking about this sometimes with clients or with listeners that we have these weird, almost competing narratives about negative feelings within the context of romantic love that Mm -hmm. on the one hand, there's sort of the school of thought of, Ooh, if you're feeling bad in a relationship, it's not meant to be. You know, if you're not Mm -hmm. feeling happy all the time or most of the time, you should break up. You should end the relationship. It's, It's not the relationship for you. And then also, almost on the other side of the same coin, we have this narrative around ah, but relationships are hard work. You gotta, you know, yeah. they are struggle. Mm-hmm. You gotta struggle mm-hmm. through it. Work. You yeah. gotta yeah. keep mm-hmm. fighting, you know, marriage is not sexy or, or you know, <laughs> like like really glorifying sometimes the negative mm-hmm. emotions within the context of romantic love. So, mm-hmm. so you kind of make this argument that like we shouldn't be focusing on it being feelings-based at mm-hmm. all. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's true. You you do sometimes get this
0: narrative that yeah, marriage is hard work, and you you have no, you don't get to give fifty percent and receive fifty percent. You both give a hundred percent, and then you know that's one hundred and fifty percent. It's <laughs> like, well, I don't know. I, none of that sounds like <laughs> a lot something. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> none of that really sounds like I I don't recognize that experience of of romantic relationships um particularly, and. I mean I, I get that it's it's a different experience for everybody but um I I think for, for part of what's really important to me is this idea of um collaboration um so when I talk about um eudaimonic love um I, I try to shift away from some of the romantic metaphors of love being either this kind of dream state or um you know or perhaps um sometimes it's represented as Battlefield, or yeah. you know, the, the side, yeah.
1: so I, like I try to get away extremes. from like, yeah. <laughs> those
0: kinds of metaphors and get into this idea that um, it's a collaborative work of art, um, which um, it, it, that it's the the idea that it's got something to do with creativity um, and that it's got something to do with um, being active, doing something in the world, um, and that idea. Uh, what I'm what I'm hoping to speak back to. Um, is this uh, uh, this attempt to place feelings at the center of love, whether they're good feelings or bad feelings. Um, what I'm saying is that if you think of love as being ideally, eudaimonically, uh, a pursuit of an activity, um, then it doesn't have to be about struggle. And it doesn't have to be about the waking up every morning singing that the hills are alive with the sound of music either. <laughs> um, it's not about either of those things, right? Those things may both occur and probably will at some point occur. Um, but it's about what makes that thing meaningful for you. That's the point of doing it. And the point of doing it, I mean, I hope for nobody was the point of doing it, the, the struggle part, mm-hmm. because like, why? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That really does seem like suffering for its own sake. Um, and, I, and I get that for a lot of people, that the idea that it would be the point of t- uh, a romantic relationship would be to have the Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music feeling But um, what I'm suggesting is that actually that's not stable either. Um, And, you know, if one, if we aim ourselves at that, we are setting ourselves up to fail and um, not just to fail ourselves, but to fail our partners as well and to make unreasonable demands of other people. Nobody's it's. It's not anybody's job to to make me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not possible to make me happy a lot of the time. Like when I'm experiencing depression, I'm not going to be happy. That's just not a thing mm-hmm. that's going to happen. Um doesn't mean I'm not in love. It doesn't mean I'm unlovable or that I can't be uh, engaged in the projects that make my life meaningful. So um when I'm talking about eudaimonic love, I'm trying to talk about the ways that, say, you know, when I experience depression... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was very aware of the role that um, my partners were playing in supporting me, um, keeping me on an even keel, making sure I was like eating, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. keeping, keeping the idea alive in me that the work I was doing was worth something. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I sort of say this too, I think a lot of people might have seen that the work was making me sad and said, give up because you're sad and that would have been to place happiness as the goal of my work or my life and it isn't right happiness is not the goal of my life for me personally (laughs) it's not the goal of my work to make myself happy so um, my partner's been able to see that and say okay so yes this work makes you sad I still see why it's important and I will still support you to do it and I will make sure that it's you know possible for you that was that was when I saw Eudaimonic Love happening. Um and so that was what inspired me to kind of um get try to get this theory together that talked about what that value was, about that collaboration in the project of the work that I was doing and that we're doing together. Um and that that even even though the um the emotional side of things was honestly pretty dire Mm. that didn't make it less pseudononic. I
1: I appreciate that real world example. You know, I'm here thinking about my own relationships, right? And so if I use my like relationships with like Jason Emily as an example, it's like, oh, well, very clearly we've had an eight year long project, multiple projects, you know, that we've (laughs) been working on together that's really kept us going. And I think really has been (laughs) part of the very fundamental glue. In in our relationship as business owners, and in our individual relationships, and so on and so forth. But I'm mm-hmm. also thinking of, you know, people who are listening to this and having that question, right? Of uh, uh, what's the project that I'm sharing with my partner? What like what like especially mm-hmm. if you know we're not necessarily wanting to raise a child together, or we're not necessarily mm-hmm. aiming to like buy a home together, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think this also intersects with a lot of people who are not in escalator relationships and are kind of wondering, yeah. oh, but what are we working towards? And so I guess I'm wondering mm-hmm. from a like a real world perspective, it's like, do you have more examples of that or ways that you think people can kind of help to start determining that for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great
0: question. And I mean, really the, all the examples are potentially misleading because everyone's answer has to be really very unique and mm. tailored to, to, to them and their situations. But that said, not every goal is a huge goal sometimes the goal is breakfast (laughs) that's good right some days that's it that's good you're good if you get that far you're doing really well and I mean I'm not meaning to suggest that this has to be like you're gonna write an opera or paint the Sistine Chapel right it's it can be literally anything as long as it means something to you for a lot of people it can be something like kind of Artistic meditative practice mm-hmm. where they just have to get a paintbrush out and put it on the paper once a day. And yeah, so, you know, f- for some people, um, the goal of uh, a relationship could be as simple as keeping a garden going, making something beautiful happen in your backyard or on your window box. Um, there's, there, it doesn't need to be anything grand. It doesn't have to be, you know, a great uh, contribution to the world. Uh, it just has to be something that means something to you, right? It could be that you support other people who are going through a rough time, um, in small personal ways, but that means something, um, that, uh, there's a inspiration for this comes partly out of, um, business ethics and, well, um, management <laughs> studies um, and this, huh. this idea of job crafting where people who are in uh, employment, they sort of are given a job description, but then they craft it to make it uh, cohere more with their values and what makes the work feel meaningful to them. Not everybody does this, but some people do it. Um, and people, that one of the original inspirations for this series was a, a janitor in a hospital who would move the paintings around on the walls to help prompt recovery, patient recovery. Mm. And it was mm. not part of her job description, but she'd say, Well, no, that's just, that's part of me, you know, to do something like that. And so mm. I think of love that way, right? <laughs> it's, I, I talk about love crafting, meaning like you take this job description of romantic partner or whatever. Mm and then you tweak it to make it into something that means something to you and whatever it is right that makes you feel that um and you know we all get it from something this that this click of a um feeling of satisfaction that you've contributed something you have made a difference to someone um whether that's just you know yeah it might be that you've made a you've made a successful business happen for years and years and years or it might be that you got them breakfast right it, hmm. it's it doesn't it's not the size
1: it's size does not matter
3: here.
0: <laughs> it's not about that. As it were.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. So it's really striking me. And uh, I feel like I learned this from this podcast and having so many conversations about this topic and conversations with like wonderful guests like you. Like how important it is to connect to your values mm-hmm. as an individual and like together with your partners as well, <laughs> uh, connecting to what is actually meaningful here you yeah. know as we talked about that a lot if people go back and listen to episode 319 that was all about that um that came up in our interview with lola phoenix in 378 about like finding your anchor right <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. yeah it's as you're sharing that it's striking me how important that work is and that's the part that everybody is different in,
0: right and this is why the kind of one-size-fits-all idea about relationships is such a disaster and especially the one size fits all, and that one size is the happy ever after myth. It's like that that size fits almost nobody. I, I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if it fits anyone at all. Um, but but when you when you come to this question about well, what do you replace it with? Then then we kind of get this sort of almost like an existential panic about well, what do we replace it with? <laughs> and, and it's it yeah. is a scary moment, right, when you realize. Ooh, no one is going to tell me what to do with my, my life, what to do with in my relationships, what we should do with our lives, right? And it's the same kind of question as what should I do with my life? What should we do with our time together? Um, and it doesn't have to be that it's a whole life. It might be, you know, a shorter shorter period of time. It might not be a grand project. It might just be what what does it mean to be in this connection, in this relationship, um, and to, to be... Um, to be good diamonds, be good spirited.
2: Yeah, and just a quick question because you call it love crafting. Mm-hmm. I assume there's also some kind of ancient tomes or packs you're making with elder gods.
0: Witchcrafting. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention those, but yeah, and there's a lot of spooky stuff. <laughs> okay, that good, good. A certain amount of tentacle action. Is yeah, involved. yeah. Okay, good, good.
3: good. Amazing. <laughs> well. I feel like we could continue this conversation forever. I just, I was so struck by the beauty of this idea of creating a project with your partner and how it, it, immediately my mind was like, wait, what does she mean by project? Like, you know, doing some sort of science project, project <laughs> or something, but it could literally mean anything, whatever that is. Yeah. And it is kind of this idea of life's work And how lovely that is that we can undertake that with a variety of people. And that that will, because it is work, be challenging and be emotionally fraught at times, and also be wonderful Mm -hmm. and fill one with happiness and also sadness. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. it it was. But it it means you have people on your team,
0: right? For whatever happens in that process.
3: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how wonderful that is as well. I did either of the two of you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? I
1: don't know, Carrie. You got to come back on our yeah. show more frequently <laughs> than every now. There's just or so, maybe maybe, it, it's, maybe it's your fault. You need to put out a book more often. I was going to say, yeah. But <laughs> it's it's <only> right. on <laughs> you. if I could have yeah, done this one in
0: three years, I would have.
1: But <laughs> sure. um, I think,
0: honestly, it just it took that long for these ideas to settle properly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's how yeah. it goes.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we do want to say to our audience that in addition to just all these great ideas and the fact that Carrie's thinking about all of these things, she's also a really great writer. And so just yes, the, the, the please writing in the book it's itself excellent. is also fantastic. And sorry to compliment that. you so much right in front of you here, but well, <laughs> <Make> uh, <laughs> <you
0: blush.
3: laughs>
2: really, truly just beautiful writing as well. So yeah, definitely recommend this relates. to everyone. Thank you. That means a lot of this.
3: <laughs> and we just before before you go what's next on the horizon for you and where can people find more of you and the and your work and this um, book yeah. <laughs> yeah and where can they purchase this book the
0: book should be available wherever <laughs>
3: <laughs> Whichever fine books are sold. Fine, <laughs> local
0: independent bookstore you choose to yes. to go to is good for me. Um no, I'm, uh, it's pretty much um available in all the usual places. Um my my website is uh carryjenkins.net and I'm Carrie Jenkins on Twitter as well. Um what's next for me? I'm I'm in the early stages of planning a, a novel, a second novel. I've I've published one. Mm. Um, And I'm I'm co-authoring a second novel about um, academia and academic life. Um, I have another uh, short book uh, on non-monogamy and happiness um, in the works uh, that's uh, under contract now and um, hopefully... Should be appearing on <laughs> on my screen anytime, any minute now. <laughs> anytime it felt <laughs> like showing up there <laughs> would <have> be <been> great. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, hopefully that one would be hitting the presses in the next uh, year or two as well.
1: Wonderful, great.
3: wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Our question of the week, which will be on our Instagram stories, is: What projects do you want to undertake with your partner or partners? And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode discussion channel in our Discord server or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinata. Our episode is researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenework and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onand from the fractal cave ep and the full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com
0: hello it is your partner big boy interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood introducing neighbor to neighbor a california volunteers network that empowers you to take action contribute to local needs and be a part of something bigger than yourself Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.